Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Brayman. Today, we're releasing the second installment of our special series where we sit down to interview leadership members at Nika ATC. So here with me today is Adam Thompson, the Regional Partner Director at the South Jersey AETC, part of Jefferson Health Foundation in New Jersey. Welcome, Adam. Thanks for having me. So Adam, let's start at the very beginning. How long have you been in the HIV field and how did you first get involved? So I am always tempted to sort of answer that question golden girl style, right? Like it was Sicily, you know, 1945. but the reality uh, is, I you know I never planned on being in the HIV field. This wasn't a dream, sort of as a, a small child. Um, I think though I did stuff around the HIV field when I was very young. Uh, in high school, I was involved with a social action theater group. Uh, it was basically a way for kids to not get in trouble. Uh, back home, West Virginia at the time was sort of going through the industrial decline uh, that we were seeing sort of beginning in the 80s and moving through the 90s. And so this uh, sort of visionary couple put together a play, uh, several plays actually, uh, sort of tackling social justice issues at the time. And the very first one that I got involved with was called Gone Tomorrow. And it was a play about a young guy in high school uh, who puts himself at risk for HIV, contracts HIV, and it sort of you know tracks the story of how it impacted his relationships in the town. Uh, I was, I think, 16 or 17 at the time when I did the play. Um, I played the the main character. So, you know, as a young kid, I was engaged with HIV prevention. I knew about it, and I was even actively involved in sort of a peer role. And we would take the play to high schools uh, around the state. We did it for church groups. I mean, it was really this kind of great effort, uh, you know, when you think about it back 1994, 1995, you know, this is right before any retroviral therapy. So, you know, prevention was a really important message. Uh, as I sort of moved through life uh, after high school, uh, I went to college. Uh, after college, uh, I sort of, you know, had a great awakening in my life, sort of recognizing that, you know, I had some parts of myself that I had not really felt, I think, free to express when I was a kid. Uh, I sort of came about recognizing that, you know, coming out as being a, a gay man. Uh, I think also part of this transition I was going through in college was being a kid from West Virginia, landing in a big city. Uh, it was quite a culture shock. Uh, I think we've seen that exacerbated sort of in our culture now with all of our, you know, sort of tribal thinking. But, you know, at the time then it was still a pretty big transition to move from that space. And I think anytime people are in transitions, it can be risky times. Uh, if you're supported through transitions, I think people can make it through. Uh, But sometimes if you lack the supports uh, that you need, that transition can be pretty bumpy. Uh, And so I had a pretty bumpy transition. You know, uh, after college, I left, I think it was about three classes shy of graduation, Uh, wandered the world for a little bit, served a lot of coffee uh, across the the globe uh, here and abroad, uh, and sort of, you know, kind of tried to discover myself, each place kind of taking, you know, step after step a little closer to who I was, but also sometimes a little further away from who I thought I wanted to be. Um, I landed back in the United States, uh, you know, early 2000s. Uh, and in that space, you know, I, I looking back, I, I think I would describe myself as a vulnerable kind of person. I wouldn't have thought that at the time, uh, but I didn't really feel like I fit in. Uh, I still didn't have what I thought were the right kind of gay friends or the right, you know, sort of 
uh, society that you were supposed to have when you were this adult gay man. Uh, and so, you know, at the time, the internet was very cool. Apps were becoming all the thing. Uh, we had just been able to GPS locate people uh, on our apps. Uh, and so I turned to the internet and started, you know, meeting folks there. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, got engaged with some people who, you know, were on a very different path uh, that led to a lot of temptation. And so I ended up, you know, kind of over a couple of years process landing on the streets of DC, pretty uh, heavy meth user, uh, commercial sex worker, and, you know, if not sleeping on the streets, bouncing between people's houses back and forth. Uh, that, you know, is a totally different uh, podcast and story, but it's sort of lands me in this place where, you know, I got pretty sick. Uh, and I remember sort of waking up and having, you know, spots all over me and thinking, oh, this is, this is not good, right? Uh, so I went to the doctor. Uh, at the time, it was a little private practice uh, in a suburban area. They told me that I was having an allergic reaction to my sheets, uh, which I thought was pretty funny, right? Because I'm like sleeping on a park bench. So I was like, well, you know, what thread count causes this uh, kind of questions were not going to be appropriate. So, uh, you know, they gave me some, I think it was steroids uh, and kind of sent me on my way and said, you know, come back if it gets worse. Well, it got worse. So I came back, more steroids. So that process went on about four or five times. Uh, then it got to the point where, you know, I was so weak, I, you know, I couldn't really walk around much and I just knew something more was going on. So at that point I landed in an acute care center, uh, 2005. Um, and I was diagnosed at the time with syphilis, hepatitis B and HIV. So it was kind of like all at once, uh, you know, some pretty serious, uh, diagnoses there. The syphilis was progressing. That was sort of what was causing the spots. Uh, the HIV, uh, you know, didn't know really the status of that, uh, but that whole experience sort of led me to work, you know, kind of in a very backdoor way in public health. Uh, when I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed by what I would describe as very kind, compassionate people. They cared very much about me. They were very concerned about what was going to happen to me. Uh, at the time, I was, you know, 25, 26 years old. Uh, I weighed, I think if I remember back then, it was like 130 pounds. Uh, I'm pretty sure, uh, you know, whatever I was wearing was a combination of, you know, Care Bear wristbands and maybe a blue mohawk. I mean, it was, I was probably not the kind of person that acute care center was used to seeing, you know, the waiting room that I was in was filled with, you know, girls coming from ballet class who had like sprained an ankle. Somebody made me uh, a little girl had broken, you know, a leg at a soccer game, you know, but it was like children, right. You know, kind of after their activities. And then here I was, you know, sitting in this waiting room, kind of that guy. Uh, and out of an urgency to help me, you know, uh, they, on my way out the door, they slid open the window and they said, you know, be sure to follow up at the health department with your HIV diagnosis. So at that point, it was sort of like, you know, the whole waiting room became aware. And, you know, that, that to me wasn't, didn't bother me as much. I think you get a pretty thick skin when you're sort of on the streets. You don't really care a whole lot about what people you don't know think about you. But the other person that was in that waiting room at that time was my father. And so that's how my family found out, you know, he wanted to talk about it. I did not want to talk about it at all. Uh, and so I just remember sitting, you know, sort of on a kind of like the side of the street, uh, kind of thinking, what's next? You know, what am I going to do here? Uh, I had a piece of paper with a referral to a 
health department phone number. Uh, at the top of it, it, it had a different clinic name. They'd scratched out the name because they didn't have information. So they'd gone on the web, downloaded something, kind of gave it to me and said, call these people. So I never called those people. Uh, and I kind of went back on the street at that point. Uh, you know, I hadn't really, you know, shot up before then because I was worried about getting HIV. Uh, but after I got HIV, I was like, well, you know, what's keeping you from doing that now? Uh, so as you can imagine, you know, the decline just sort of sped up. It got faster. Finally, January of 2006, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Uh, I left DC, drove south. I'm not really sure what I was going to do uh, that direction, but I landed at my fraternity brother's doorstep and he was a physician at the University of Virginia. Uh, he took one look at me and said, you, my friend, are no bueno uh, and you need to see a doctor. Uh, and I was like, great, you're a doctor. And he said, no, I'm not that kind of doctor. Uh, so he connected me into the University of Virginia. I, I knew him. He was like, look, these people, trust me, it's going to be different. They are not going to scream out to your dad. And I was like, look, you know, it's just, I just don't know what to do. And I just don't know how these people are going to help me. Right. Because at that point, I'd called every major rehab center in the country. I said, I'm a meth addict. I need help. And they all went, ooh, we got a cocaine program. We've got an alcohol program. And we can like put you in this program that's kind of like gay people with cocaine problems, but sometimes they drink. And I was just like, oh my God, no, like the, it's just not going to work. And so at that point, I just felt like there was not going to be the right door, right? And so here I am, cisgendered white guy. Could I be walking with more privilege in the world? And I'm looking at the healthcare doors going, this doesn't feel right. So uh, I had been engaged with an outreach worker, actually, on those GPS apps. Uh, his name was Tomas Cabrera. He was working at a agency in Northern Virginia and had been my outreach worker, the one telling me, like, hey, you should think about this. You should come in. You should get tested. Um, when he heard about what happened to me, he shared it with the Virginia Department of Health. Uh, and I got contacted by the director of prevention at the state. And she said, hey, we'd love to hear about this experience. This isn't really, you know, the kind of service that we want to provide. And we want to make sure that this doesn't happen again. So at that point, I was like, cool, this is great. Maybe I want to do this, right? So I reached out to the local aid service organization in Charlottesville, Virginia. That's where I was at the time. There was a place called Aid Services Group. Uh, and I said, hi, I would like a job. And they said, great, we're hiring outreach workers. Can you hang out and talk to the people that you know from your network and sort of like, you know, bring the message that you wish you had got? And I said, absolutely. And I had a, a genius supervisor. His name was Bruce Taylor. Uh, he currently works for the Virginia Department of Health. He said, you know, nothing is more important than the story and what you know about where you have come from and the people that you've engaged with. And he said, sit in that, bring that to this organization. We can teach you interventions. We can teach you process. We can teach you, you know, everything that public health wants you to know. But what we can't teach you is what you went through. And that's what we need to know. So, you know, my doorway in, it's not clinical. It's not, you know, uh, any sort of traditional door, it's really as a patient. Uh, and from that point forward, you know, after that work at the aid service organization, I just kind of got my, you know, fingers in different pots, got involved in community planning and from there quality management. And I think the rest is history, really. Uh, and then I landed at the AETC where somehow by a weird twist of fate, people trusted me with education of others. <laughs> Wow. I mean, I think we can all agree that was quite a story. 
Um, can you tell me about how your experience resonates with the idea of nothing about us without us? Absolutely. Uh, I think as a person with HIV, when you get sort of engaged, right, or involved, there's like this world that you kind of enter into. And there's all of these like brilliant like agitators and activists and advocates and like people running these national organizations and policy leaders and thought leaders. And it's just this like giant conversation that's taking place that, you know, up until that point, you had no idea was even happening, right? It's like, I'm walking through the world. I have no, you know, sort of health concerns that I'm perceiving or aware of. And then suddenly it's like this curtain is pulled back and there's this you know, whole landscape uh, happening in front of you. And I remember the very first conference I went to, it was uh, the now defunct uh, National Association of People with AIDS. It was in New Orleans. It was called Staying Alive. Uh, and we gathered, right, as people with HIV in this place and space. I had never seen, like, so many persons with HIV in one space uh, talking openly about it, sort of sharing. I, you know, I was in Charlottesville, Virginia. I knew like four of us and, and here we are trying to build community and boom, land right in this place. And, you know, the very first thing that sort of, I kept getting like sort of slammed at me, uh, thankfully, right. It was a good message was the Denver principles, uh, you know, this sort of blueprint fingerprint is how I describe it of our community, which really said like, this is who we are. This is what we're going to do. And this is our responsibility. Uh, and what I love about that document is that we were talking first about HIV prevention, right? So all of these like, you know, oh, people with HIV as the vectors, like, yeah, well, we were also the first people on paper saying it's our role and responsibility to take control in this space, that it is our experience and our narratives that should drive this. So when I hear nothing about us without us, you know, at first, I always see that in, you know, my HIV sort of like community knowledge. But the more I learned about like stigma and discrimination in healthcare, the more I see that this nothing about us without us is like across our health conditions, right? It, it's not unique to HIV. I think in many ways, because of the unique ways HIV is stigmatized comparatively to some other health conditions, we've had to like root ourselves more in that concept. But, you know, when your life depends on people getting it right, uh, I think there is something about that situation that when it's your life uh, and you believe so strongly that you know how to get this right, or that in the narrative of your community is how to get this right. I think you bring something to the table that is, you know, distilled down into don't do this without me, right? Not just because it's a good idea, but because you're not going to get to the answer without understanding this piece of it. And so, you know, any meeting I'm in, any place I'm at, I'm always trying to bring back to that space, right? How does this affect us? How do we understand this? And, you know, I think that confuses room sometimes because uh, in many ways, I think my colleagues uh, and a lot of the people I work with, like the person with HIV aspect falls back a little bit. So when I say we, you know, that's a ecumenical word. People like we, right? It's a team building word. It allows people to always think of themselves as being part of the group. But I think in many times when I'm saying we, uh, I'm often talking about us as patients. And I think that in many ways, it's people with HIV in specific contexts, but in others, it's to really help people understand that all of us have this experience and expertise in many ways, but nothing about us without us requires that you know, we don't just put on a different hat uh, because I, I just think 
uh, lenses and the way you look at the world can really affect sort of what you see in front of you. Uh, but when you know decisions are being made about you and you know that the people in your community are not getting the outcomes, phrases like nothing about us without us, I think really clarifies what we're talking about here. So if you're sitting in a room and you're having a conversation and we're not there, it's about us, but it's without us. And so it will never be as good of a product as it could have been if we had been engaged in the process. So it resonates strongly with me. I mean, I would say I drank the Kool-Aid in the community a long time ago, but I think I, you know, after drinking the Kool-Aid, what I've seen is that in the history of civil rights, uh, it is done in partnership, right? And I, you know, whole different podcast as well, how power is achieved, but you know, I come from a space and place where I think it is somewhat in cooperation uh, with the systems of power that are there. And I think that there are people in these systems of power making decisions every day and they make them sometimes in a vacuum, sometimes with the best intentions, but I would say 90% of the time without us. And I think that's something our community says over and over because it's still not getting through the walls that it needs to get through. Everyone has multiple identities that they bring to working in the HIV field. What would you say are the main lenses through which you see your role with Nika AATC? So that's a very interesting question. Uh, you know, I do a lot of work in cultural humility and one of the activities that we do a lot is about the, the lenses, right? The identities that you have and sort of what are the contributing factors that kind of, you know, uh, shade the world you know that that you live in and you know we sometimes i think talk about lenses in the way that we talk about hats right like oh well i'm just gonna put on this other hat or i'm gonna put on this other lens and in many ways i think activities like the lenses in, in grad school we're doing one called cultural pie which i think is even more or less appropriate uh and so it's like they they let you sort of think that you can somehow like distill these pieces of yourself out right and be like oh well i'm gonna you know, look at this right now from, you know, with this lens, or I'm going to do this. And I think that it's really hard to do that, right? I think mostly what I can do is be aware of all of the spaces that might be influencing me and how that forms and shapes what I see. I think when I think about lenses, especially in the spaces like working in the AETC and like, you know, sort of the work we do is how, you know, people perceive your lenses and what they think you're bringing to the table. You know, I think most folks, uh, sort of on their most pessimistic side, everyone's got an agenda, right? And on their like most optimistic side, we can create a shared agenda. But I think we are living in a world where we are being asked to question people's lenses and we should, right? Like, why is this important to them? What are the things that they value that are being expressed in these decisions, right? And so when you sort of look at it, it's people will, I think, assume your lenses, they will sort of think about you in a certain way and sort of go, okay, they're, you know, bringing this particular piece. Like some of the teams I work with uh, in my practice transformation work have often said, oh, Adam, well, you're a, you're a big system thinker, right? Like that's how you see it. And so they're, they're sort of feeding back to me sort of the lens of the world that they think I have, right? That I'm always seeing this big system and they're right, right? I mean, that is what I'm always trying to look at. But when you look at these lenses, I think it's also important to recognize that, you know, what people think are your lenses are not often what they are, which is why in our cultural humility work, we try to create spaces for people to disclose those lenses, to say, this is who I am. And I think I'm pretty, I try to be pretty clear that when I'm sitting in a room, 
you know, I disclose, I am not a clinician, right? I like to use the phrase, I, I don't doctor, I stay out of doctoring, I have a doctor, right? That's, that's my understanding of my role. But it's like, I am a person with HIV. I do have that experience. I will always have that experience. There is nothing that I look at in the world that will be seen without that. But I also have the experience of being a white cisgendered male. I also have the experience of being a person who's experienced homelessness. I have a person who has sold drugs. I have a person who has sold himself. Like transactional, transformational, like all of those things are going to become part of this. And so I, I think that, you know, those are the lenses I see things through. Sometimes I think, though, when you're in a room of, of people, if you don't open up that space about disclosing these identities, I think people sometimes forget that about people, that when you become competent in their space, right, when community members start smelling like, you know, the public health professionals, and we like wear the outfits, and we say the words, and we know the models, suddenly we're stripped of our community-ness, almost. And I think that that lens, even if people think it's gone away, you know, I try to at least communicate and I think I try to hold strong to it, which is, you know, that will always be a piece of this. You know, I think the frustration is that that is not enough. That that lens that I bring of experiencing this care, that lens that I bring of relationships in my community and the ability to gather narratives and bring that forward, that that's not enough of a lens, that I have to learn more in order to communicate with our health systems and, and even our AATC partners, you know, in many ways, the AATC has transformed, I think, over the last six years that I've, you know, been around here in partnership with what's happening in healthcare. We're all getting better at this, you know, but at the end of the day, there's still a lot of work there because when we professionalize our community, the community part doesn't go away. And, and I think that if we're not tapping into that value, why did we spend all of this time getting into those rooms. It's like suddenly we're asked to comment on the program model. Great, I'm happy to do that. I've had to pick that up along the way. But what I'm more interested in is talking about the experience of that program model. What does it feel like for people to go through that? And there's a gap between what we think it feels like and what it feels like. And for me, that is the lens that I try to bring. It's very like, uh, I read a book about cultural brokers a long time ago, right? Like Bob Dylan sort of like, bridging these worlds. Uh, and I think a lot about that in healthcare. And so I think if you were to say, what's my primary lens, it's, you know, brokering this culture between this clinic and community space so that community people don't have to get a PhD in program evaluation or, you know, understanding public health data, you know, that we have a space and a place where the lenses that are just the experience of our care are enough. Just by being in the room, you bring a certain urgency and accountability to what we do as an AETC. Given that you're just one human being, how would you envision or you know, recommend building that urgency and accountability into what every one of our regional partners and every AETC across the country does? Yeah, so <laughs> interesting question again. Uh, urgency and accountability, you know, I think here, I should say, you know, this urgency and accountability can lead to lots of work. Uh, and my mother just recently forwarded me an article from the World Health Organization about how that leads to like stroke and early death. So uh, I would like to preface uh, in advance of anything I say about urgency and accountability, work-life balance is critically important and everyone should attend to that. Um, that said, <laughs> uh, our systems have been built 
in a certain way. And the way that we have built our systems over time was to add rather than to subtract. Uh, I have watched systems take what should have, honestly, the work was seven days to complete, move to six to seven months. It is those timelines that I find unacceptable. Those are timelines that were created by us. These are systems perpetuated by us. Uh, I think if anyone is listening, people are telling us left and right that these systems are perpetuating inequity. These systems are creating barriers. These barriers begin, I think, in allowing these kinds of things around our timelines to happen to us rather than actively participating in the transformation of those timelines. Like we have people that are ready to step into a job tomorrow. And it takes our systems three to six months to get them in place, which means that's three to six months of work that was not done. That's three to six months of commitment to the American people that we made, taxpayers, that is not done. Only here's the kicker. It is done. It's done by understaffed people who pick up that additional amount of work, carry the burden to achieve the goal, and we celebrate it. That is a problem. That is not a good way to run a system. I don't need a PhD to see that. And I think that patients bring that simplicity, which is, wait a minute, hold on. Why is this so complicated? And if the answer is, oh, well, it's a system, then we're blaming humanity. And if you wanna blame humanity for everything, that's great. But I really am about some solutions here, right? And like, what are we gonna do? I think urgency and accountability is almost immediately created when you have to look at the people in the room who are on the other end of the decision you're making. That when you are looking at something like anal paps in gay men and you say, well, this is going to be really complicated. Oh, this might take a while. Let's look at this in another six months when we think we've got more time. Well, when you have a person with HIV in the room that looks back and says, you know, all my friends have died of anal cancer. Are you sure there's not something we can do about this? I don't know anyone who's died of AIDS lately. All the people I know died of anal cancer. So that conversation gets real personal to me real fast. Not only am I at increased risk for it, but everyone I know is at increased risk for it. So I think that kind of conversation changes the room. You know, recently we had a conversation about injectables and I'm seeing this, you know, nationwide about one, there are great options for these injectables. There are people who significantly struggle with adherence that we see it in the viral loads. We see it in their mental health. I mean, it, it, it is painful. It is traumatic. And these kinds of medications are going to help them. And that is amazing. But as a person with HIV, what I can tell you is there are people every day who take that pill, who have taken that pill for 10 years, who struggle, who it is traumatic for. And so sitting in that room, having me there, I was able to look at that and go, whoa, wait a minute. What about the people who are suffering and adherent, right? And I think that kind of shift in a conversation is what patients bring. I don't think I have doctors that aren't thinking about that. We have brilliant doctors. I will die on the hill every day defending the people who treat people with HIV in this country. They have for decades at the beginning done what their colleagues would not and continuing through built systems of care that now other systems are modeled on. But this just, I think, exposes how important it is to have other lenses, right, in the room to really look at the system and go, it's really going to take us six months to do this? Every room I'm in with patients, they look at it and go, awesome, I've got all this time. I can't wait to do this. So we're going to train on Friday. And then we are end up explaining 12-month timelines to community members who we, who we inspired. We asked to be our partner. 
and are ready and willing. And I think that kind of urgency is created with community in the room. If you don't have us in the room, it won't be there. Uh, not because people, again, not because people don't care. I want to be really clear. This is not a, a caring thing. It is the reality of the systems and the complacency that has been habitualized in our you know, willingness to say that is how it is. And as a person with HIV who did not build these systems, does not come from these systems, I look at every one of them and, and ask the question, why? Who says? And can I talk to that person? Do we have their email address, right? Because there's always someone and like, you just have to connect to people. There are relationships. And I think people with HIV have to connect with people. It's been our survival, right? If we didn't learn to connect with people, we would still be dying in the streets, right? Mostly black and, black and brown folks. And like that building of relationships is a coping thing. It's a survival mechanism. But I think there's a lot to be learned in health systems about what has been achieved by simply focusing on relationships. We could change these systems tomorrow. We built them. Half the people in our systems are like the medical directors, right? Like, so it's really looking at ourselves and saying, what are we doing to move the pieces on the chessboard? What can the systems do to move the pieces on the chessboard? And are there the patient views that can look at the chess and say, y'all are really playing checkers and just end the game and be done with it, right? So I know that is a lot, uh, but uh, I think it should just distill down. I, I know I'm always like 10 minutes to get to a five second quip, but you know, people living with HIV in the room will simply create that. Uh, and making sure that we are in the room uh, will help you uh, set timelines, I think, that are better and question the systems that you're supposed to be questioning. Uh, we're told to do this. Uh, our communities are begging for us to do this. Uh, and this is one way that we can do it and structure it is by bringing in a different eye of accountability. And that's what patients and in particular people with HIV can do for us. You mentioned that having people living with HIV in the room changes the room. So as we start to wrap up our conversation, I'm wondering, you know, if you looked ahead 10 years from now, what does that engagement look like to you? I love vision boards and vision statements. Uh, you know, about eight years ago, maybe it was 10 years, gosh, 10 years ago at this point, uh, I worked with the National Quality Center and we created something called the Training of Consumers on Quality. And our goal when we started that was to put a person living with HIV on every clinical quality management team. That was the vision. We were like, we want a person in every space. And we thought, this is a big goal. This is going to be really hard, but this is what we need to do. We need to put one of us in every space so that there's someone in that space going, hold on, wait a minute, what's up? Since that time, uh, our systems have built community health worker programs. New York State built a peer certification program. Wisconsin has a program. New Jersey, I mean, it's like these kinds of programs are exploding. We're seeing people with HIV take leadership positions all over the country. You are seeing more of us disclosed about our status and more of us describing how our lived experience has supported our professional work over time. I have seen this in, in my 15 years in HIV, just then, you know, how this has transformed. When I look 10 years in the future, what I know now is that uh, co-production begins at, at the very beginning, right? To sort of like not be cliche about it, but it's, there are people who decide what content we're going to train. 
there are people who make determinations about how that content is going to be delivered. There are people who build charts and graphs. There are people who review for clinical, you know, accuracy, right? Does this, is this correct? Is this safe? We do all of those things. If in my world in 10 years, you know, each of our AETCs uh, would have someone living with HIV whose job it is to manage the consumer, person with HIV, patient, client, whatever it is you want to call it, sort of lens in that office. You know, I, I don't want to fall into the sort of the trap of like the, you know, we have a director of diversity and we hired a black person, you know, like we have a director of consumers and we hired a person with HIV. Like it's, it's you know, it's more systematic than that. You know, it's really looking at having an individual whose responsibility it is to ensure that the narrative and lived experience of people with HIV are present in the discussions and development and evaluation of our programs. That when we sit down at faculty development, that's been pushed through the lens of people with HIV. So that when we say, what are the problems facing our system? It's not our performance indicators all the time pointing the direction, but it's the people in our you know, clinics, the people in our agencies who are saying, my biggest problem is feeling respected at the front desk. I haven't seen that in a lot of our AATC faculty developments, and yet it's the biggest problem in every one of our organizations. People can't get past the front gates, right? So like, I think that shows me where the gap is and the vision place for me would be filling that gap and saying, if this partnership is so critical that we recognize that, you know, people with HIV, patients, clients, you know, people who work, people who receive services in our system are our partners in this, then I think we have to actualize that in a new way. I think, you know, ironically, all you have to do is look back to the patient provider relationship, right? I mean, at its core, you've got two people. Now it's care team, cool, right? But, you know, in the, the traditional model, you had two people sitting down with their expertise saying, this is what I bring, this is what I bring, and coming to a shared decision about what's going to happen. I think the AETCs are a really great place where we could experiment and play with that model and see what does this shared decision-making space look like? How do we bring the value of persons with HIV and their experience in the same way that we bring the clinical expertise? Because we have, we have brilliant clinicians. Imagine if we could harness our community's expertise with the same you know, level of engagement as we do our clinical partners. I, I just think we have a really big opportunity in front of us. And the vision I think is, is putting people in place who strategically look at that gap and over the next 10 years, build systems that address it and you know, sort of really build the place where we are co-producing not only the outcomes in our health systems, which is what we expect of our customers, right? The agencies as AETCs, but how are we role modeling and reflecting the products that are coming out of our shops? And are they co-produced? And if not, how do we do that? And so I think the vision for me is a space where we've answered that question. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us all a little glimpse into your professional background, how you became involved with the AETC and how important it is to consider patient voices when thinking about how best to design training for healthcare providers. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AETC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.nikaatc.org. 
aetc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.